Well, thank you very much. I'll take you back to some uh, old-fashioned traditional <laughs> political theory, if I may. Can you all hear me at the back there? So I, I prefer to say that that's okay. Well, thank you. One of the most controversial issues surrounding the revolution of 25 January concerns the highly complex question of its end. According to the official discourse of the ruling military council, which is largely shared on this matter by both the Islamist parties and the so-called vestiges of the old NDP, the Egyptian revolution ended on 11 February 2011, the day Mubarak and his family were toppled from power. The momentous events which ensued, like the legalization of political parties, the parliamentary elections, and the impending presidential vote, form, according to this narrative, a post-revolutionary stage, a political transition, which is expected to terminate on 30 June, as we know, with the SCAF uh, handing over power, as it promised, to a newly elected president. In contrast to this interpretation, the liberal and leftist forces which make up the coalitions of the Egyptian bloc and the revolution continues, as the latter's name states emphatically, have never accepted that the January revolution has come to an end. During the violent battles at Muhammad Mahmoud Street last November, activists like Hossam al-Hamalawi objected to the branding of these events as the second revolution, insisting that the uprising aimed to, and I quote him, finish the job that we started in January. <laughs> Similarly, on the first anniversary of Mubarak's overthrow last February, the novelist Ahdaf Suwaif wrote an article in Al-Dustur titled The Revolution Continues, which was, of course, the title of our panel yesterday. According to this counter-narrative, the removal of Mubarak and his cronies from power did not eradicate the structures of the old regime, and for this reason, many observers, including editors of mainstream newspapers like the Financial Times and the New York Times, consider that Egypt has so far experienced an unfinished revolution. Without probing, at least at this stage, the issue of whether the January revolution is still continuing or not, we could discuss this later, this paper will start from the premise that, in contrast to the official version of the SCAF, but also the Muslim Brotherhood and the former NDP, what started in Egypt on the 25th of January 2011 remains until now an incomplete revolutionary project. To avoid misunderstandings, let me stress that both the theory of revolution and contemporary historical experience inform us that an unfinished revolution is not necessarily a continuing one. It may be still continuing, but not necessarily. Indeed, if we are looking for examples, Egypt's own history from 1881 until 1951 could be narrated as a sequence of two unfinished revolutions which were either discontinued or derailed. In what follows, I shall first attempt to show why the Egyptian revolution should be regarded as an incomplete political project, and to do so, I shall draw on the perspective of postcolonial state theory. Then, I shall turn to the main focus of the paper, which is to provide a preliminary assessment of the effects of the 25 January revolution on the Egyptian state, how the revolution affected the state. And finally, the analysis will focus briefly on the concept of Praetorian parliamentarism, with the aim of explaining its importance as a compromise solution between the injured post-colonial state and the parties which seek to represent the revolutionary movement that emerged last year. 
Let's focus on the first aim, Egypt's unfinished revolution. If we concur with the view that the January Revolution must be perceived as an incomplete project, this is not so much because its programmatic demands, <laughs> encapsulated in the slogan, bread, freedom, and social justice, are yet to be fulfilled. These are long-term aspirations, which even a triumphant revolution, or a fully successful one, would still encounter major difficulties in fulfilling. What renders the success of the January Revolution so far limited is the fact that its immediate strategic goal, which was the downfall of the country's political system, or regime, the notorious Iskat al-Nizam, has not yet been achieved. Although there is, of course, a certain difference between the state and the regime, or the political system, <coughs> as the former, the state, does not include the power elites, whereas the regime does, as Professor Nicola Pratt, who is in front of us here, explains in her book, Democracy and Authoritarianism in the Arab World, and as she's looking at me, it's page five, paragraph two, line eight. <laughs> the infrastructure that sustains different regime is what the state does. The state is the infrastructure which sustains a regime, she said. In this regard, the unfulfilled immediate objective of the January Revolution, in its most limited definition, has been to bring about the downfall of the state which sustained the Mubarak regime, insofar as the state is the infrastructure that keeps a regime. Now, drawing on the work of Hamza Alavi and the Subaltern Studies Group scholar Parta Chatterjee, I conceptualize the Egyptian state during the Mubarak era as a debased form of post-colonial state. The early post-colonial state, which Nasser established like its colonial predecessor, was a highly centralized, authoritarian, and bureaucratic entity that relied heavily on the army as its main power base. <coughs> it differed from the colonial state mainly with regard to its pronounced nationalism, populist flare-ups, and developmental orientation. From the mid-70s onwards, however, the post-colonial military regime which Nasser instituted began to acquire, first under Sadat and more so under Mubarak, a complex set of patrimonial networks. That is, personalistic structures of political control which sprang out of the ruling family and its extensive circle of friends and cronies. According to a recent article by the distinguished Africanist scholar Crawford Young, from the early years, alongside its bureaucratic structures, the post-colonial state also began to grow a set of personalistic, often patrimonial, structures. Here is what Young wrote in 2004, and I quote him. The command post-colonial state could not operate on the basis of ultimate impersonal authority and coercive force alone. Indispensable where supplementary mechanisms of personalized rule. At the summit, he goes on to say, state power was personalized through cults devoted to the ruler. Patrimonial webs of personalized circuits reciprocated with clientelist loyalty, and he goes on to explain how the two had to be combined. What is worth noting, however, is that in Egypt, the Praetorian structures established by the free officers were not abandoned when Sadat and later Mubarak began to extend their clientelistic and patrimonial systems of control. That is why, in the last decade of Mubarak's rule, a major internal crisis emerged within the state between the old Praetorian bureaucratic apparatus 
and the kleptocratic cliques of Mubarak's friends and cronies, which were represented in the leadership of the NDP, and the heads of certain key ministers, ministries. Consequently, what became known as the crisis of succession from 2002 onwards, inside the state at least, took the form of an escalating opposition on the part of the army and the traditional bureaucratic establishment to the inheritance of the presidency by Mubarak's son, Gamal, which the patrimonial elites regarded as a vital condition for their continuing political survival. The denouement of uh, this conflict between the two power blocs eventually took place outside the state, literally in the streets during the first 18 days of the revolution. It was then that the stronghold of the regime's patrimonial <coughs> elements, the interior ministry and its security police, started to fire at protesters in order to keep the beleaguered president and his family in power. At the same time, the army, representing the old bureaucratic bloc, took the neutral stand, as we know, until Mubarak and his cronies gave up. As a recently published insider's account by the journalist Mustafa al-Bakri shows, the sharp divisions within the state apparatus were fully understood, for example, by Suzanne Mubarak, who apparently, according to this account, often remarked that, and I quote, the army is not with us, but the police is, and that is why it should be armed with the latest weapons. And so far as this analysis is valid, the, outs the ousting of Mubarak on 11 February 2011 <coughs> fell short of the much hoped for downfall of the regime and of the post-colonial state which sustained it. As Dina Shahata wrote in the journal Foreign Affairs last year, the revolution that pushed Mubarak from office has resulted in only a partial dissolution of the regime. Seen from the perspective of post-colonial state theory, this means that the revolution succeeded in removing the patrimonial networks of the state, but in so doing, rather ironically, it brought to the fore the hitherto latent <coughs> deep state, which are the armed forces. It is mainly for this reason that the January revolution must be regarded as an incomplete political project. If we now turn to our discussion to the specific effects of the revolution on the state, we should begin, perhaps, by observing that these initially appear as a chain of intersected contradictions. Because so far the state has been deformed rather than transformed, or to put it differently, because its old structures have been partially but not completely destroyed, its operation since February 2011 has been marked by what Trotsky once called a series of incomprehensible zigzags. These contradictions are what Amnesty International referred to in its report last November as the long list of reassurances, which the SCAF quickly turned into a litany of broken promises. One striking contradiction, but not the most important, was caused by the fact that although the patrimonial networks of Mubarak's regime were quickly dismantled at the top, at the middle and lower levels, they still remained largely unaffected. This state of affairs has left many enclaves of former Mubarak cronies in key positions of the bureaucratic machinery, which they were able to use as a launch pad for many counter-revolutionary activities. The obvious case in point here is the Interior Ministry, the stronghold of the old regime, whose former chief, <coughs> Habib al-Adli, has been tried and imprisoned, 
But most of his men, including the most infamous torturers of the Central Security Police, were either reshuffled to similar posts or promoted to higher positions by the SCAF-appointed government of Assam Sharif. Needless to say, the continued protection of the Interior Ministry, which is presumably caused by fears of a revived insurrectionist momentum, controverts the SCAF's own strategy of overseeing an orderly transition towards an elected government. Nevertheless, the central contradiction which the January Revolution implanted into the structures of the Egyptian state was to compel the army to both enhance its authoritarian practices and to gradually introduce a series of important democratic reforms. Because it destroyed it partially, the revolution made the Egyptian state function in a lopsided manner. On one hand, it compelled it to assert its Praetorian face in order to defend its threatened existence, but on the other, because of its precarious position in society, it also forced it to institute a new social contract, which led to the introduction of the most important set of democratic freedoms since the end of the colonial era. Mm -hmm. To fully comprehend the sharpness of this institutional paradox, try to visualize the following image. Immediately after the events at Mohammed Mahmoud Street in November, 200 yards into the street, one could see a high barricade made up of blocks of concrete and behind it a deployment of three armored vehicles and several armed soldiers in khaki protected by barbed wire. At the crossings to the right and left, the same battlefield image could be seen, armored vehicles, barbed wire, and armed soldiers standing under the quiet buildings. Straight opposite, however, near the exit to Tahrir Square, a massive red banner left by the protesters said in gigantic letters, the people want the marshal's downfall. The soldiers could see it, but somehow they did not seem particularly bothered about its strong disapproval of their chief commander. Rather astonishingly, the most authoritarian imposition of state power could somehow coexist with the most hostile criticism against it, as though no conflict existed between them. Let me now conclude by briefly turn to the final question of how the partial destruction of the old regime has driven Egypt's military guardians to search for a post-revolutionary order around an imagined model, which we may discuss further in the questions, which for, the lack, for lack of a better term, I shall call Praetorian parliamentarism. The crucial point to grasp here is that, even under the most favorable circumstances, a pure system of military rule, i.e. a scaf without anything else apart from a bureaucracy, cannot sustain itself in power for very long. The reason for this is that a pure Praetorian state lacks any mechanisms for incorporating the popular masses into the state. It is like the head of an octopus without tentacles. This is precisely why Nasser's Praetorian regime had to develop populist mechanisms to mobilize the masses, an element that has led many scholars since to refer to it, rightly in my view, as a Praetorian populist regime, not just a purely Praetorian. Similarly, this was the reason for which the post-colonial Egyptian state under Sadat and Mubarak had to develop a system of clientelistic and patrimonial networks to maintain its authority and control. This is also what Crawford Young quite rightly stressed in the passage I quoted earlier when he says that the command 
post-colonial state could not operate on the basis of ultimate impersonal authority and coercive power alone, but needed supplementary mechanisms to carry out this purpose. Mm -hmm. What I tried to argue so far is that the partial success of the January Revolution might have failed to destroy the state in its entirety, but at least it succeeded in uprooting these supplementary mechanisms of the state during the Mubarak era. In doing so, however, <coughs> it created the need for the backbone of the state, the SCAF, to invent new supplementary mechanisms for incorporating the masses. And in the face of the widespread radicalism and increased expectations which the revolution created, the SCAF has evidently settled for the view that the new supplementary mechanisms will have to be, this time, democratic. Of course, these democratic mechanisms will continue to be subordinated to the backbone of post-colonial governance, which is a military state. We don't know for how long, because a new conflict, a new struggle within the institutions of the state will begin between the elective institutions and the army. And this will take a very long time, perhaps, for the time being, it looks as though this was the main deforming effect of the revolution on the Egyptian state. Thank you. Thank you.